I should tell you at the very beginning, the sermon title has nothing to do with the sermon. <laughs> Early bulletin deadlines easily make a liar out of me. After I gave up thoughts of the great escape, I started work on the sermon, and I got about halfway through writing the next version of this sermon and started looking over it and found myself, myself saying, blah, blah, blah. The truth is, I really don't want to preach about this sermon. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to read it. I have heard Rachel weeping for her children too many times. And I can scarcely read the words. I suspect many of you too. I like angels singing on hillsides to unsuspecting shepherds. I like stars guiding wise men. I like a baby in a manger. I like the singing of carols and familiar words. I like the silent awe of candlelight on Christmas Eve. My sense of satisfied peace shatters at the sound of Rachel weeping. Yet perhaps this dark side of Christmas has much to teach us. Truly, a lot of darkness surrounds this story, indeed threatening to swallow it whole. Dark places of difficult choices. It starts with Mary and Joseph, but I have to say, one of the things I love about ministry is getting to meet with young couples who are planning to get married. They're engaged, they're in love, they imagine this wonderful future together, of always holding hands, always in love, wonderful children, prosperity. I imagine Mary and Joseph the same way. Oh, maybe the marriage was arranged by elders or by their parents, but I suspect there was a lot of nudging going on and pointing at that one and maybe. But the engagement runs into a snag when Mary begins to feel those changes within her that tell her that she's expecting. In Matthew's gospel, there is no angel for Mary. Nobody telling her it's going to be okay. It's Joseph, a righteous man, it says, who has two righteous choices. And like many a righteous person, he runs into the very limits of his righteousness because it doesn't really cover this because he has choices. He can divorce her publicly. He can expose her to shame and stoning. They would not only abort the baby, they would abort her. Or you can quietly just disengage from this engagement, leaving Mary to cope by herself. It's what righteousness demanded. But Joseph was open to the dream. An angel who speaks and says, don't be afraid. The very first thing is, don't be afraid. Lean into love. Dare to marry Mary. What's loving? What's courageous now, Joseph? And Joseph listens to the angel and he marries her and a whole new adventure begins that he could scarcely imagine playing his role in this redemption drama. But there's another in this story who's afraid. Herod, the man who holds the power. 
And there are wise men in this story who searched for the baby Jesus, and they thought they'd just stop by the palace and ask for directions. Asking a vicious, jealous, paranoid king about the next king? Where did we ever get the idea that these guys are wise? <laughs> and Herod's afraid. He's inquiring diligently of the wise men. The language really suggests that he tortured them and strikes a deal with them where he lets them go if they'll go find the baby and then come back and tell him. It amazes me, this journey by people who are outside the faith and outside the nation and outside their, their ethnic group, and they come looking for more. They come honoring with generosity and in wisdom and in dream choose, to honor the, choose not to honor the deal they made with the devil. And that's where our text starts. With an angel telling Joseph to flee to Egypt, the traditional place of refuge. Maybe you have seen that cartoon, the one that shows the, the nativity scene with no Jews, no Arabs, and no refugees, only a cow and a sheep. I know the religious right doesn't like to say that Jesus was a refugee, but I'm not sure what else you call this when Mary and Joseph and the baby go on the run to avoid being killed. And so they join millions of families throughout history who have fled violence aimed at them. I cannot imagine this trek to Egypt, knowing the soldiers can move faster than you can, knowing that even in hiding a baby's cry may give you away, wondering where you're going to find food and shelter, wondering how you'll be greeted when you get there, wondering what you'll do when you get there. Wondering if you'll ever see home again. Joseph must have wondered about this decision to lean into love. Because it sure is scary now. Dark times. And unbelievably, things got darker. The wise men wised up, and in a rage, Herod ordered the killing of every toddler in and around Bethlehem. That is inconceivable. And though we don't seem to have a historical record of this, we do know that Herod was one who killed the entire Sanhedrin when he first came to power, the Supreme Court of Israel. We know that he murdered two of his sons. We know that before his death, he ordered several executions so that there would be grief in the land because he knew nobody would grieve him. This is totally in keeping with his character, but it also means that there's just no escape from this darkness in his heart. Herod did this because he was afraid. Just recently, an African-American man named Timothy Kaufman staggered into a New York police station bleeding from several stab wounds. They got him to the hospital where he died, and the police had no clue as to who'd done this. Two weeks later, James Jackson approached, James Jackson, a white man, approached two police officers in Times Square 
and folded his coat and laid it on the ground in front of them and told him the coat was full of knives and that he was the one who had attacked and killed Kaufman. He said his purpose was to start a race war by killing as many black men as he could and that he used a sword to kill Kaufman. And when you look at his writings, you see he expresses the fear expressed by white supremacists everywhere, the fear that white people are losing their place, the fear that people of color will outnumber, the belief that they're better than everybody. Fear makes horrific decisions. Our Department of Homeland Security now lists white supremacy as a greater threat to our national security than Al-Qaeda. How did Herod get away with this? I mean, it's a brutal world, but Herod was in a league all by himself. Maybe Herod didn't look evil dressed in fine clothes, lived in the palace. He built roads and aqueducts and ports and walls. No, not walls. That's somebody else I'm thinking of. <laughs> and the economy was good and people were afraid. They didn't want to rock the economic boat. And they could reason that Bethlehem, well, you know, I, I didn't know those people over there. I, I didn't know any of those children. Maybe that's just a rumor. There's the fear embodied in Herod, and there's a fear embodied in lots of folks that falls drip by drip by drip, eroding decency and justice. And with the murders of children came this prophetic, painful, poetic word. A voice was heard in Rama. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be consoled because they're no more. Rama, the place where they stood, waiting to be frog marched to Babylon, weeping for the land they would leave. Think of the slave auctions here, the breaking of family bonds in the name of profit. Think of our deportation of Native Americans along the Trail of Tears. Think of the concentration camps of Germany. Think of the separation of children at the border. And when you think of these things, listen for that high-pitched keening sound of Rachel. And at this very point, we're told to hope. The quote about Rachel's from Jeremiah. And the prophet says these things, but in the very next verse, he says, here is the hope of your future. In this dark, dark moment, here is hope. And I have to ask myself, what's Matthew doing with this Christmas story paired with the slaughter of innocents? What is this hope? Matthew writes to people who themselves face dark times, who live their lives at risk, who face persecution. And there are several allusions here to Moses 
and the Old Testament, things that we kind of miss, which those Jewish Christians would have grasped right away. Moses was their great liberator who led them out of slavery. But Matthew reminds them that Moses faced terrible odds from the very beginning, and his very survival depended on several people around him, including his sister, all playing a role so that the exodus, the liberation, could take place. Matthew writes of wise men suffering in a dangerous search for extraordinary truth. He writes of a man named Joseph facing the limits of his righteousness and yet daring to lean into what love would ask. In other gospels, a young woman is told she'll have a baby of the Holy Spirit, and she says, let it be so. And shepherds hear angels singing on the hillside, and when the light shows over, they don't say, let's go back to the sheep. They said, let's go see. People breaking the norms, people breaking out of their habits, people embracing great adventure at great cost. Matthew is not writing to interpret suffering. He's writing to remind them of their purpose, their role in the larger story of liberation, the larger story of salvation. I'm so grateful for the book that Carol introduced us to several weeks ago on Wednesday night. Ted Loder's book, Gorillas of Grace, Prayers for the Battle. In this prayer, I think he captures what Matthew is doing with this pairing of stories. Sometimes, Lord, it just seems to be too much. Too much violence, too much fear, too much of demands and problems, too much of broken dreams and broken lives, too much of war and slums and dying, too much of greed and squishy fatness, and the sounds of people devouring each other and devouring the earth. Too much of stale routines and quarrels, unpaid bills and dead ends. Too much of words lobbed in to explode, leaving shredded hearts and lacerated souls. Too much of turned away backs and yellow silence, red rage and the bitter taste of ashes in my mouth. Sometimes the very air seems scorched by threats and rejection and decay until there's nothing but to inhale pain and exhale confusion. Too much of darkness, Lord. Too much of cruelty and selfishness and indifference. Too much, Lord. Too much. Too bloody, bruising, brainwashing much. Or is it too little, too little of compassion, too little of courage, of daring, of persistence, of sacrifice, too little of music and laughter and celebration? Oh God, make of me some nourishment for these starved times, some food for my brothers and sisters who are hungry for gladness and hope, that being bread for them, I may also be fed and be full. Amen. We have our hymn of response. It's always a privilege 
and a joy to be here with you, to be a people who are part of this greater story of liberation of people, of all peoples. We encourage you to decide if you'd like to be part of us. We encourage you now to sing together. <laughs>